can, can again give you a glimpse at some of the fun of camp and, and the, the experiences of camp, but to thank you for the investment in the life of, of our young people for that. It was good. We could watch it again, but um, that would be your sermon, and don't say anything. So, um, but, and you know, the, the video, I always, feel, I always feel bad for Ryan when they play the video because we, I've, I've been involved with youth ministry as a pastor, a youth pastor for years. I've never seen a group with more oak trees than our youth group has. I mean, we have guys that make most of us look short. So Jay and Owen and Gareth, these guys that are like 6'10", and then there's, you know, Ryan or me if I was standing there, you know, looking up to these guys. But, um, but the, the reason this, this matters and this significant is because, and we're talking about this this morning, it's an investment in, in the lives, and not just of young people, but our, our challenge this morning, and we're going to get to this this morning, and kind of ignore the sermon title. I titled this thing before I really had it put together. And so it's a, the, the theme's the same, but I'm, I'm approaching a little differently. But the, the question is, how are we investing, not in such a way just so, so people can enjoy life, but so that they can be deepened in their faith, and they can experience the love of Jesus and, and know the story of Jesus. And, you know, with all of these games that you see and all the fun stuff, don't ever lose sight that when these young people are at camp, uh, there is worship. They're in small groups. They're talking about the stories of faith. They're in prayer walks. And, you know, there's some, some real significant spiritual and, and worship opportunities happening. And I have a number of colleagues in ministry in this conference whose faith was either birthed or deepened through Warren Willis Youth Camp. And through the things, and and this camp has had an important part of my story since I was a, as a kid in a lot of ways. So so thank you for that and the investment that you make as a congregation in the lives of our young people. You know, starting from birth through their high school experience and 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 continuing on. So that becomes kind of kind of sets the table for us today. The second part of this series, if you were here last week, you know, I introduced just a very very brief series that we're doing that bridges on some of my experiences in Kenya last month. And the title of the series is Seen and Heard. And it comes from, I'm just going to read the central verse this morning from, from Luke chapter 7. It's, it's verse 22. If you were here last week, I'll, I'll reset it, and in case you weren't here, just to give you some context again of, of this, these words that Jesus speaks. These are spoken to the messengers of John the Baptist who John's been imprisoned by Herod, where he will eventually lose his life, and he has sent word to Jesus to have a question asked. And the question is simply, are you the one, or shall we expect someone else? The question is simply, are you the one that we've waited for? Are you the promised one, or the Messiah? We can phrase this in a number of ways, but John's looking for reassurance. He's looking for a word of, of, of hope in the midst of his dark place. And the significant verse is what Jesus responds to that question by saying. And it begins at, at verse 22. And, it, and he replied to the messengers, You go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Brothers and sisters, let's take a moment. Let's pray and bless these words this morning. Lord, thank you for your word and for these moments, speak to us the truth of, of our faith, the comfort of your presence, and the challenge of our call. 
We ask your blessings in these moments. In Christ's holy name, amen. So again, Jesus says, you go back and you tell John what you've seen and heard. You become a, a witness to the work that you have seen here. The things that I have said, the things that I've done, the lives that have been changed, the hope that has been birthed, the bodies that have been healed, the, the kingdom that has been preached, the kingdom that turns the world upside down, that says things like the last shall be first and the first shall be last. Those who are humble will be exalted and those who are exalted will be made low. That, that the significance is not the religious leader standing in his glory, but the humble who pray at the altar asking for forgiveness in the midst of their sins. That's what Jesus wants this message to be. This is what he wants these messengers to tell John about because he knows that their testimony will be John's comfort. And they're called to go and tell the story. And that becomes the foundation for, for the, the, char the charge, if you will, the command, the call upon the lives of those who follow Jesus. Our first invitation of faith, our first invitation that Jesus gives, it all is always to come and to receive. To come and to receive the gift of salvation, the gift of forgiveness, the gift of life and life abundant that he offers. That is always the, the first invitation we have. It's God's gift. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. We're invited in faith to come and to receive grace. That saves us. It is the gift of God. No one gets to boast. You don't get to get cocky about this. You didn't earn it. It's given to you freely. That, that is where faith begins. That is the birth. That is the message of salvation that we hold fast to. But Jesus also issues a command upon those who would follow him. And that is to go and tell others. Matthew 28, go and make disciples. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Teach, baptize, proclaim. Go and make disciples. In other words, you need to go and you need to share what you've learned and what you've seen. In fact, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, after the resurrection, as he's gathered with his disciples before the ascension to heaven, he gives a command. Now again, hear me. He gives a command. It's not a suggestion it's not a hope, it's not a well if you feel like it kind of charge. It is an expectation of discipleship. And this is what it is. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. You are to be my witnesses. You are to be my witnesses. Now what does a witness do? This ties back in exactly to what happens here in Luke chapter 7. A witness testifies to what? To what he or she has seen or heard. If you've ever been a witness in a trial or in, in some sort of court hearing, that's your charge. Testify to what you know. Testify to what you see and hear. So Jesus uses that language. You are to be my witnesses. You are to do exactly what he exemplified here in Luke 7. What he told those disciples to go. Just go tell John what you've witnessed, what you know, what you've seen. That becomes our call. We are, we are called to be part of that witness Part of that testimony. And it's not a negotiable. It's not something that we all embrace, but it's not a negotiable. The, the problem is, for many of us, and, and sometimes me included, in, in the first service, the, the choir anthem this morning, one of the, the songs was kind of a, a medley of songs, was, was I'm in the Lord's Army. You might remember that song. I'm in the Lord's Army. Um, yes, sir, I'm in the Lord's Army. And, and all of us are called to be in the Lord's Army, if you want to use that image. The problem is too many of us are in the secret service. 
you know? That, that's just, that's, that's, our, that's our challenge. And, and here's, here's the reality of that. And this is not my quote, and I would give credit to whoever spoken, but I can't remember. But, but it says this. There's no such thing as secret discipleship. There's no such thing as secret discipleship. Because either the discipleship destroys the secrecy, or the secrecy destroys the discipleship. Did you hear that? The discipleship destroys the secrecy, or the secrecy destroys the discipleship. Now, I'm not telling you that you've got to go out stand on a street corner and, and verbally um, barrage everybody who walks by with the gospel. But I am telling you that our lives, our words, our actions need to be witnesses to the gospel of Jesus Christ if we are called to be his disciples. If we've embraced the call, if we've accepted the gift of salvation, we need to be witnesses. And our lives need to testify to that because it becomes the way that we invest in others. If those, you know, it's a simplistic analogy, but it's, it's powerfully true. If the first disciples had decided to keep it to themselves, there would have been no second disciples. There would have been no next generation of disciples. And, and Jesus says something there in Acts chapter 8. He says, you're to be my witnesses. And then, then he uses this ever-widening circle. He says, first in Jerusalem. Then in Judea, which is the larger nation of Israel, if you want to think of it that way. Then in Samaria, which so now we're starting to go beyond the borders of, of Israel. And then to the ends of the world. So first in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, to the ends of the world. He adds the ends of the world just in case we don't get the point that there's no place it doesn't go. There's no, there's no corner of the earth that we're not called to share the gospel. And the reality is... We're part of that widening circle. We're here because the circle widened. 6,634 miles. 6,634 miles. That is the distance between Jerusalem and Parrish, Florida. 6,600. So unless any of us can trace our lineage back to a disciple, and if you can do that, I'm impressed. Tell me how you figure that one out. We're part of the widening circle. We're here... Because somebody told somebody who told somebody. And we're part of that, that tradition, that lineage, that testimony, if you will. That's what begins to happen. Lives invested in lives that invest in lives. And so it creates a ripple effect is what it is. And that can have powerful impact. And I want to share with you this morning the story of somebody I met in Kenya who is the product of that powerful impact. That, that ripple effect, if you will. And his na name is Josiah Olkerzwa. Olkerzwa. That's, that's Josiah that you see before you. Josiah is an elder in the Maasai tribe, which is in southern Kenya, north Tanzania. Northern Tanzania. It is one of the um, warrior tribes of, of Africa. A fascinating story, the, the Maasai people. They are, um, they're, they, they, they're herders, if you will. They, they're, they're ranchers in many ways. They have cattle and they have goats. That's what they raise. That was their, their primary stock. And your wealth in the Maasai tribe is measured by how many heads of cattle you have. And so they would, they would in, in the history of the people, they would kind of travel and um, take their herds around as they'd look for lands to graze. Um, but they also believed, as part of their story, as part of their, their indigenous faith, that when the god, 
the, the particular God that created the Messiah people. When he created them, he gave them ownership of every head of cattle in the entire world. So part of their understanding was, if you have cattle, it belongs to them. So, so they would go, and if they came across somebody who had cattle, they took the cattle. I, I, I joked with Christy this morning, you know, her cattle and Chad, your cattle is their cattle. I mean, that's the way they viewed it. So they were a warrior tribe because that would cause a lot of fights, you know, seriously. So, so they, were, they, were, they had this warrior mentality as they, as they, they raised their cattle, as they raised their, um, their goats. And, and that was a tradition of their, their story and their, their understanding passed on to generation and generation. That was the tradition that Josiah was born into. His story became very radically different, though. Because as a young man, uh, as a boy actually, at the time when Kenya was still occupied by the British, the British dictated that every tribe in the surrounding areas had to send a young male to be educated. And Josiah was the young male that was chosen. Now that sounds in our, in our mindset as a wonderful honor. That was traumatic for him. Because his people had rejected the ways of the white man which should sound somewhat familiar to us from our American history. They'd rejected this oppressive, oppressive re regime, which it was, and uh, he didn't want any part of it. But they had to send somebody. And he was chosen, and by his story, and he would sit around and tell his stories. I've got a picture here of, of him telling stories. I, I know it's a little distant, but he's there in the middle, and uh, you can see all of us are just transfixed on the stories that he would tell. Um, he, uh, he didn't want to go. They chose him. Because he was the most mischievous boy in the tribe. Seriously. And they were sure they'd send him back within a month or two. So he went. And despite his best efforts, he got what we would equate to an elementary education. Then he got a high school education. And then he was sent to university. All he wanted to do was go through the rites of passage to become a warrior of the tribe. And he did. He did get to go back on, you know, what we'd kind of call breaks, and he went through those passages. But, but he became educated under the British system. And when he was finished, they chose for him that he was going to be a teacher because there were no other educated Maasai people. So he became the teacher, and that's what he did. And that in and of itself is, a, is you know, kind of a remarkable story, but... But it was what happened while he was teaching. And that is, he became confronted with the gospel of Jesus. Now, the seed was planted by a book that he picked up. He became a very um, vociferous reader. And so he picked up a book one day by this kind of relatively unknown evangelist, um, American, um, Billy Graham was his name. Um, and he picked up a book by Billy Graham. And he read it, and it planted a seed. And then some other people that God put in his life watered that seed by investing in him. Names that we don't know, faces that only are familiar to him, but, but people that took the time, like teachers and leaders in, in any number of ways, to tell him about the story of Jesus, to invite him to faith. And that's exactly what happened. He became a passionate follower of Jesus. And if that had been the end of the story, that would be a remarkable story. He was the first of his tribe to become a Christian, and that wasn't a good thing. 
And if that's where it ended, it would still be a wonderful story to celebrate. But that's not where it ended. Because this young man, this warrior, this believer in Jesus, decided that not only had he received the gift, but he needed to invest it. And he went back to his people and began to tell them the story of Jesus. And it was not a welcome story. They didn't want any part of it, but he persisted. He left teaching and became an Anglican priest. In fact, he is Pastor Josiah, as we knew him. And I don't have a, a picture of it. You can actually see in this picture, behind him, that's his church. That's the unfinished church that they're, that they're building. It's a slow build, but, but to his right over here, you, like it's a little hard to see, but you can see just the corner of what looks like a shed. That's actually the church. That's where we worship. And he went back and he began to tell people about Jesus. Again, not readily received, but he persisted. And he kept throwing the stones, if you will, to create a ripple. Eventually, his mother came to faith. Eventually, his father came to faith. Eventually, his father's other three wives came to faith. Um, at the same time. That was the culture. So that was a whole different topic that he talked about. His dad and his mom and the three other wives. But they all came to faith, as did others in the village. So much so that 80% of his family eventually came to Jesus and were baptized. And he didn't stop there. He kept telling the story among his people. So that today, 80% of his tribe are followers of Jesus. And they gather together in a number of churches along the savannah. This place where we were, I didn't talk about this. His homestead, this was my favorite part of, of Africa. Because this was the part of Africa that, that was Africa the way we think of it. We, we took a, a bus to get to his house. I think I've got a picture of his house where we stayed. These are really small, so I'm not always sure what picture I'm bringing up. There, there's his house. Now, we were out about 30 miles from civilization. We'd taken a bus on, and if I call it a road, it'd be an exaggeration. There were times I'm not sure where we were going, but our driver knew. And, we got out, and it was on this journey that we saw Africa the way we think of it. We saw giraffes. We saw wildebeest. We saw antelope. We saw um, zebras. Um, we saw other stuff. Um, but, but it was, yeah, I know that's very eloquent, isn't it? We saw stuff, a lot of stuff. Um, but it was, it was fantastic. And so on his, at his property, you know, this was, this was our view. And again, uh, of the savannah, when you, at night, you'd look out and you would see maybe two lights. And those were homesteads, houses, if you will, that had generators. But that was it. The sky was as bright as I've ever seen. To the left of where this picture is taken on a clear day, you could see the top of Kilimanjaro. The, the tallest mountain in Africa. I mean, this was Africa. It was gorgeous. We stayed. I showed you his house. We didn't stay at his house. Um, we stayed in these tents right there. In fact, that was mine. Me and Tom were in that tent together um, with no showers for two days. It was pleasant. Um, that was our view outside our tent, just to let you know. Um, so so that, that's where we were. And it was... It was, it was fantastic. But what happened in time is that um, these family members, these family, they came to Jesus because he didn't quit. He wouldn't stop. In fact, when we worshiped together, there was an, another elder of, of the tribe who stood up during worship and he read scriptures at times and participated, kind of 
like an assistant to, to Pastor Josiah. Well, that, that man, and I didn't write his name down, unfortunately, but for 10 years when they started this church, he was so hostile to the story of Jesus. He was so hostile to anybody coming to faith that when they would gather to worship, he would fire up his tractor and he would drive the tractor around to try to make as much noise as he could to disrupt worship. For 10 years he did this. Today he stands and reads scriptures and prays together with the people. That's persistence. I don't have that kind of patience. I'd have written you off in two weeks if you did that to me. But he didn't quit. He didn't quit. And the story of his people was transformed. And they're a wonderful story. I got a, a picture of them there. That's with the spear that his father owned. They would, part of their rite of passage would be to go out after their journey and they would have to spear a lion. And that spear speared lions and rhinos. I don't know how you do that. I figure the, the fittest should survive. It is survival of the fittest in every sense. But, but that was part of their story. But their story changed. Today, um, they don't have four or five wives. They have one. And women have a voice. And they have a place that they didn't traditionally have. And they're not quite as egalitarian as, as we may be. But it's better. Fathers invested in the lives of their children in a way that they, they never were before. The story of Jesus has transformed their, their understanding of who they are. They don't steal cattle from other people anymore. Um, they believe that when you come to Jesus, you become better, a better person, better father, better wife, better husband. All because some people took the time to invest in telling a young Maasai teacher about Jesus. It creates ripples. Now, the, the question for me that challenges me that, that th th this is, at its surface, a very, very simple question. The, the message this morning is a very, very simple message. It's simply this. What kind of ripples are you creating? Your life creates ripples. Everybody's life. Your life has impact. Your life makes it. You are a witness to something, good or bad, positive or negative. None of us leave this earth without having had an impact. The kind of impact is what we get to decide. And Jesus challenges us. He tells us, you are to be my witnesses. Your life need and should be a testimony through what you do and what you say to who I am. Are you telling the story? In whatever way you're called, are you telling the story? That became the challenge. Because we never know what life that we're impacting that could impact thousands. And we may impact a life that only impacts one, and that's okay too. Our job isn't to look into the future and determine what God will do, but to trust that God will do. Our job is to simply be faithful in the way that we're called. So, so that became my challenge, and that is the challenge I ask you this morning. What kind of ripples are you creating? What kind of impact are you having? Jesus looks at us, and he gives us the same challenge he gave those messengers. You go and tell what you've seen and what you've heard. What you've seen and what you've heard. Is your life that kind of a witness to what you've seen and to what you've heard? Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for the, the stories that inspire us and the lives that, that have impact. But all of our lives have impact. We all make a difference. The question is, what kind of difference is it? Lord, help us to make a difference for Jesus through our actions, through our words, to tell your story, to share your good news, to live your love.
May that be the truth of our lives in Christ. We pray in your holy name. Amen and amen.